0: Everything we know about UFOs is changing. Thanks to a team led by former Pentagon UFO investigator, Lou Elizondo. That is real, whatever that is. And former top intelligence official, Chris Mellon. This is a current, continuing phenomenon. It's happening, it continues to happen. They discovered five unique characteristics that UFOs have in common. They call the five observables. released groundbreaking videos (laughs) that forced the Navy to admit its pilots were coming face to face with unidentified objects.
1: The US Navy made a shocking admission today.
0: Strange flying objects caught on tape by their own fighter pilots
1: are in fact UFOs. Something needs to be done.
0: Now a new wave of military witnesses is coming out of the shadows.
1: I'd be lying if I said I wasn't scared I've never seen anything move like that. Shape, size, speed, it's clearly unidentified.
0: The team is united on a new mission. Connect the dots to reveal the truth about UFOs. This thing had no capability like anything on Earth. And warned the world about the dangers they might represent. Carl Sagan once famously said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. He was absolutely right. But now we have
2: the proof. Hi, folks. Exclusive interview that I talked about on Twitter now with one of the the testimony talking heads that we saw on Episode 3 of Unidentified, UFOs and Nukes. Remember, Unidentified is on the History Channel, Saturday nights, nine ten central, and the show so far has been absolutely incredible. Episode 4 just aired at the weekend, where we saw Lou Elizondo trekking around South America, meeting some very important figures and shown some incredible videos on there too. But episode three, which has probably been the most popular so far, putting out a poll on Twitter, I think 60-odd percent of you said UFOs and nooks has been your favourite, just with the weight of some of the testimony, some of the people that were talking on some really incredible incidents as well. And one of those people are with me now on the show. Uh, He is a 12-year veteran of the United States Air Force Security Forces, and they spent two and a half years in the Middle East during Desert Storm. I've got Jeremy McGowan on the show with me. Jeremy, how are you? Good, Andrew. Thank you for having me. It's a a pleasure to be here. No, uh, pleasure is all mine. Um, Listen, I want to get straight in by starting with a quote, because when I was watching your episode, it was one of those where I'm kind of entranced in what's happening, and we're looking at nuclear silos and recreations and, you know, some of the, the, the conversation and what we were seeing was really, really kind of engrossing. But your quote kind of snapped me out of a little bit of a trance when I was watching it because it really hit home. Your your introduction, you said to Lou Elizondo, you don't necessarily want to be the guy that saw a UFO. You don't want that stigma. I want you to talk a little bit about that. So what's changed for you that you're now on TV discussing, you know, a, quite a profound experience? You know,
1: it's... What's changed... 25 years of history since the incident I think it's this this occurred 24 25 years ago and it took me this long to be able to mention it to anybody that you know wasn't a childhood friend of mine or somebody that I had implicit trust with Um, and I think it's just a a culmination of information stacking uh, current events things that have been occurring in pop culture and for for lack of a better word and i'm probably going to be taken to task for this society has kind of glorified the nerd as of recently and that in and of itself has taken away a lot of the stigma about being involved or associated with things like this we uh in, in the professional world, in, in the military world, in the high-ranking world, there is still a uh, don't ask, don't tell, for lack of a better terminology, in regards to UFOs. But outside of that, when you're not directly involved with with uh, signals intelligence or, or OPSEC or anything outside of the realms of super-secret classified information, the the detriment in speaking is lessening and i've been watching that and i've been seeing that and obviously i've been out of active duty for a number of years now Uh, my security clearance has lapsed and and i no longer have a have a need to stay silent on things there there are things that i still have to tap dance around uh, for for obvious reasons when it comes to security but that's not due to government restrictions that's just due to common sense. Uh, but I think that society as a whole is starting to uh, uh, appreciate the antidotes the, or the ant- antidotes. It's, they're, they're starting to appreciate the stories and the ideas that people are coming through and, and saying, well you know maybe this guy doesn't need Thorazine, maybe he actually saw
2: something. maybe this is maybe this is real and, and the nut house is not in his future. You're right. And I think things and programs like Unidentified really are helping people in the UFO community get a little frustrated with it because it's something we know the subject. We know these incidents happen. But to 99.9 percent of the general public, they don't know the ins and outs. They don't know about the interaction with nuclear missiles, black triangles. People like Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon's backgrounds are incredible and very impressive. Lou Elizondo's life story as a joke with Anthony LePay would be redacted because he's done so much throughout his career that he's yeah. someone that's just fascinating and ha- he holds a weight when he talks and Chris Mellon does too. And I think that's why people like yourself on this show really work because there's such a credibility to what you're discussing. You've got nothing to gain from these conversations. Like you say, in the past, there was a level of ridicule that maybe stopped all those coming out. But that is that is lessening now, which is helping people like yourself come forward. And that's really appreciated. Can you just talk us through for any listeners like around the world that listen to the show? The It's only available in the US right now, and that will be coming uh, around different parts of the world soon. But if you want to just talk through what your experience was that you shared on the show.
1: Yeah. And and to backtrack just a little bit, I I, I do want to say that I I had reservations about coming forward with the story. All the way up to and including the the first few minutes of me sitting down in the chair in front of Lou. Uh, it was the professionalism that Lou and Anthony and the entire production team uh, at A&E and the History Channel had during my story. And as as I continued to speak and as I was continued to be questioned, I did not hear a laugh, a snort. A snicker. Uh, I, I didn't see anybody rolling their eyes. It was the most professional experience that I've had uh, in 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 just about anything. And I've I've worked in in government and, and private industry supporting the government. And these guys these guys were consummate professionals. And not one singular time did I ever feel like I was being judged. And Their approach to the interview and their behavior in the interview really helped allow me to say what it is that I that I wanted to say after 25
2: years. Excellent. That's really good to hear. And I think that comes across on the show as well. It strikes a tone that gets the serious nature of the subject across. But Lou Elizondo's catchphrase has always been look at the data, look at the data. And that's what he's presenting to people. And that's what he's drawn out of people, no matter who you are. He's talked to fishermen off the coast of Chile, Argentina, Peru. And he's talked to high-level military officials throughout the world. And he has the same conversation and the same respect and approach with all of them. And that that really shows.
1: Yeah, and and I will say, uh, before we go back to answer your your question, which I'll ask you to restate for me because I've forgotten the, the nuance, but I will say that the vetting process... Up to uh, the interview that Lou did himself, that the producers of of A&E and the History Channel did um, with this show. And and I'm not saying this because I'm on it. I'm saying this because I experienced the process. Uh, There is a while the stigma is being reduced to the people that are coming forward with the stories. The media has done the UFO community no favors over the past ten or fifteen years with the type of TV shows that have come out, the type of stories that have come out previously, because typically it's it's the guy wearing the wife beater, chain smoking a cigarette, standing in front of a trailer, saying that you know he and his mom saw something in the sky. And yeah. this show is the antithesis of that. I I had to produce documentation and certificates and uh, photographs proving that I was in the area uh, before I even met Anthony or spoke to Anthony. I went through so many gatekeepers who validated and verified my story time and time again before I even got to Anthony, and I had to go through Anthony before I got to Lou. So it was understanding that everybody has gone through the same experience. The quality of the people that are coming forward on the show are in my opinion, uh, without reproach.
2: Yeah, and I think that comes through and what's made it through to the final sift. When I spoke to Anthony, I think he mentioned about 2,000 emails and correspondence had been sent to him that he had yeah. to sift through from various different sources and different agencies, different government agencies, to get down to what ended up being around 25 testimonies which eventually are talked about are introduced throughout the, the nature of the show so you asked about that question to go back so what i want you to do is if you could just retell for our listeners the the story you told on the show
1: yeah okay so the story is is interesting and to to prefix this the interview that i had on the show was probably close to an hour and a half if not two hours long on the show itself, I came out with, I think, about six to eight minutes of airtime out of that hour and a half to two mm-hmm. hours. They did an incredible job in keeping the story on track, knowing how much was left on the cutting room floor. And that is that is a testament to... Anthony's job and the production team's job to be able to do that. But that said, there was a tremendous amount of information that was left, and I appreciate the the opportunity to kind of get a little bit more of that information out. Um, at the same time, if you recall, during my episode, uh, Lou was on camera saying that he had to be careful, as did I, about describing the, the minutiae and the detail of, of what I was doing over there because of the sensitive nature of that operation. Uh, So if, if I sound a little bit uh, guarded or hushed, it's, it's not because I am uh, under any type of restriction from the government, but at the same time, I don't want to say something that puts me under a different kind of spotlight. If, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, I absolutely respect that as well.
1: Okay. So the the general idea of the story that was aired on uh, on that episode is I was 22, 23 years old. I was in the United States Air Force serving as Security Forces officer. Uh, at the time, I was with the uh, the 23rd Security Forces Squadron out of Pope Air Force Base, which is a, uh, for lack of a better term, it was. A, uh, a different kind of security forces unit. Uh, most of us were tasked uh, with assignments with JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command or, uh, or SOUTHCOM or, or things like that, things that normal security forces back at that time didn't partake in. And uh, we, got a, we got a notice one day to, uh, to get deployed and we uh, jumped in an aircraft and we flew out to Dover, uh, Delaware Air Base and we had no idea where we were going. And uh, they wouldn't even tell us where we were heading to until we were in the air uh, from Dover. And as we were flying out to the Middle East uh, from Dover, we were told that we were going to uh, uh, be in-country in Jordan. Now, by this time, I had already done several tours in the Middle East. I was familiar with Kuwait and uh, Iraq and Saudi Arabia and, and all these other places having done extensive amounts of time. But I hadn't even considered the country of Jordan to exist at that point in time, being in, in my early 20s. had no idea what was going on, and it just struck me as odd because there, nothing ever had happened in Jordan. And uh, there was nine other guys, nine other people uh, from from Pope that were on the aircraft. And we landed in Jordan, and immediately things were just different. Uh, like I said, I'd, I'd been on multiple deployments. I'd been in the military for quite some time by that point. I'd even done a little bit of presidential security when, uh, when, uh, presidents had come on base. So I, I wasn't green by any sense of the word, but when I got off the aircraft and we were getting settled in, we were in the middle of the Jordanian desert. And I mean, there wasn't anything around there. There was, there was an airbase that looked like it had been abandoned in the 1970s and was just now being reclaimed and brought back to life and we were in the middle of Jordan there was very very little host nation uh, personnel around and, and that means there was I didn't see any Jordanian officers I didn't see any Jordanian military around it was like the United States had just dropped in and taken over an air base that had been abandoned and we were re- rebuilding it for some reason and that was mm-hmm. that was odd because even in Saudi Arabia uh, in the height of the war or almost anywhere that we were posted in Saudi, there was a host nation representative there with us. And this wasn't the case in Jordan. And unlike every other aspect that I'd ever been in with a military operation, we always stuck with our own team. Uh, Here, we got split up almost immediately. The other nine guys, I don't even know where they got posted. But I got sent to a post where my only requirement my only job description was to guard this crate and if if anybody is listening that has been in the air force and been on a a duty assignment you know you have your your uh uh, your roe book you have your rules of engagement book you have your standard operating procedure book which is basically a three-ring binder telling you who to aim your weapon at who not to aim your weapon at what id cards in the local area look like and things like that there was none of that here it was literally, here's here's your M16, here's your ammunition, um, that box that you see over there, don't let anybody near it, don't get near it, and then that's it. And then you ask the question, well, what happens if somebody gets near it? Well, shoot them. Okay. But that's it? It was like, we'll take care of everything after that. And I say box. It's, this thing was a crate, and it was a crate the size of a Volkswagen Bug. A giant wooden crate. It had no markings. There was no insignia, engravings. Uh, I didn't even, you know, it was like it was was nailed shut. It didn't have straps around it or anything like that. It was just a big ass crate sitting in the middle of the desert for no apparent reason. And uh, of of course, when you're in in, in an exercise, it was it was told to me that this was a military training exercise. But I was carrying live ammunition which is untypical of military training exercises. Normally we use miles gear or some sort of laser tag type of stuff for, uh, for exercises or you know, point broomsticks at each other and go pow, pow. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had a full combat load, and uh, our radios and, and communications equipment was, was encrypted, and the ops tempo that was happening there was unlike an exercise should be and then when we would uh when i would get the opportunity to go in for chow at the chow hall the mess hall uh, you'd look around and you would see all sorts of different personnel there i saw people from naval special warfare i saw people from the 75th ranger battalion i saw people that were from uh, uh the nsa the cia the fbi with the blue jackets and the the yellow letters on it and then what struck me most uh, strange of anybody was I saw people from the DOE, uh, Department of Energy and uh, of course this was back in the days when we were still wearing the tricolor uh, we call them the chocolate, well, the tricolor uniforms right after the chocolate chip uniforms uh, came out and these guys would be wearing mixes of the uniforms tricolors on the top, chocolate chips on the bottom you could tell they weren't military issue or, it's just very strange people doing very strange things and, and nobody talking about it so I I just started observing absolutely everything that I could possibly observe and, and taking it all in because you can't ask questions or you shouldn't ask questions. If you do ask questions, you're told it's not important. Just shut up and do your job. And, uh, with, with the DOE there, with Naval Special Warfare, with the 75th Ranger Battalion and, uh, and some of the other alphabet agencies, you, you just start putting things together and it didn't happen overnight. It didn't click on me it didn't dawn on me until maybe years or, or, or decades afterwards but i managed to piece everything together and i've managed to sit down and speak with other people who were part of the same exercise but in different areas and what i've been able to gather and at the let me backtrack a minute for at the time I was under the impression that what was in the crate was a calibration device of sorts, something that would emit a specific radiation signature that maybe our satellites could lock in on and and be able to target so that if we were looking for a lost or stolen nuclear device, we would be able to use uh, those satellites to, to track it. But Everything needs calibrated, you know, even optical satellites. They put giant X's on the ground and barcodes on the ground to be able to train them and, and get them to, to focus on certain things. So I was I was just thinking that maybe what's in the crate was some sort of device that emitted a radiation signature that our satellites could pick up. And I went with that for a while. Um, but then it just something just kept scratching at me and I, I just kept picking at that itch. And over the past 15-20 years, you know, I've I've randomly picked up the phone every now and then and talked to somebody or called somebody and said, "Hey, were you ever involved with this or did you ever do anything with that?" And it's it's taken me that long to be able to put all the pieces together. But now my belief, and this is where Lou came on the show and said that that he had to be careful in what he said, and. I don't have the same restrictions that Lou does because I'm not representing the history channel and I'm not speaking for any I'm speaking for my personal experience out there and what I believe to have happened and I will say that I have no definitive proof that this is the truth, but this is what I have put together that crate, in my opinion, was holding a nuclear device. And it is my belief that that nuclear device was a recovered asset that had come from one of the fractured states post fall of the Soviet empire. And this information is put together because of people that I have spoken to that were on the receiving end of that crate. Uh, it is information that I've put together because I've, I've dug up congressional testimony uh, from, from individuals who have talked about uh, the recovery of fissile material during the fall of the Soviet Empire and, and uh, Iraq and North Korea's desire to acquire uh, plutonium and, and operational nuclear material uh, without straight up admitting that that's what it was. In those same timelines, in the same areas, um, and we have admitting that uh, we have government officials admitted to the fact that we have intercepted and recovered guidance systems in that same area and in that same time frame. But nobody has ever admitted to recovering actual fissile material. Uh, but it is my belief that that crate uh, did contain a recovered uh, nuclear
2: device. And Can I just say, you know, what it sounds like to me, it's the plot line of almost every action movie in the late 90s seemed to be a Nicolas Cage out in the desert somewhere in some Middle Eastern made-up country where they're recovering like a broken arrow or nuclear material, you know. So it's it's one of those things that of its time was pretty relevant and being told that was a kind of story in the news and, you know, broken states, that sort of thing. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, that's fascinating to hear, yeah.
1: Yeah, if you, have you ever seen the movie Wag the Dog with Dustin Hoffman? No, I, I would highly recommend it. It's, it's an older movie. It came out in the, uh, the early to late now uh, somewhere in the nineties, I believe. Uh, but it's with wag. It's with Dustin Hoffman called wag the dog. And it's basically about how the, uh, the military and the government used the, uh, the Hollywood access to create, uh, tensions and to create, uh, incidents that didn't actually happen. Uh, mm-hmm. but but this is, this is a very similar situation. Um, so to kind of put a, a finer point on this, and, and one of the reasons that I believe so strongly that the content of that crate, if not a actual nuclear weapon, was at least highly radioactive fissile material and not just a calibration device, was because of... It was because of the lack of the rules of engagement we had and the standing orders that if anybody got near, just shoot them. But not only that, they had told me, don't get near the crate. Don't get, just don't get near the crate. And of course, when you're, when you're in your early rank in the military and you have virtually zero supervision and you're working the graveyard shift, you don't do what you're told. I stood on the box. I climbed on the box. I sat on the box. I pissed on the box uh i did everything to that crate that that i was told not to do about about 6 years ago i was diagnosed with a specific type of skin cancer that is caused only by radiation exposure and it was in my groin and i do not nude sunbathe um now, granted, I've, I've had surgery; I've had it removed, and it has not reoccurred. But to have a specific type of skin cancer that is only caused by radiation exposure in a groin area—you um, know—I sat on the corner of that damn box. Yeah, and I, I believe that that was probably the cause of it. So, I mean, it's—it's okay. it's nothing more than than you know, circumstantial evidence. That I have put together from multiple, upon multiple, upon multiple sources, uh, but with personal experience. But the the culmination of the story tells me that that crate contained an active nuclear warhead that we had recovered from one of the fractured states that came out of the fall of the Soviet Empire.
2: And, and as part of that, uh, you you saw in the sky, didn't you? With uh, was it night vision equipment? Yeah. Uh, so an object.
1: Yeah, so like I said, you know, when, when you're in your 20s and you're in the military and you have virtually no supervision, you, you do things that you're not supposed to do. Um, I, back, at that, back at that time, I smoked and I, I chain smoked uh, cigarettes. And, of course, you, you can't smoke when you're on post because lighting up the cigarette – on enemy's night vision is going to make you look like a giant neon billboard. And of course you don't want to be caught smoking on post around something that they told you don't get near and things like that. So I walked off post probably by about a hundred yards. And this is at night in the middle of the Jordanian desert. And if anybody has been to the desert, there's, there's very few clouds. There's very few atmospheric occlusions or anything like that. It's just crystal clear and, and stars. And you can you can see the, you can see the Milky Way and you can see celestial constellations and things with with clarity that you have in almost no other part of the world. And, of course, we have night vision goggles and thermal imagers and all, that, all, all all sorts of things like that. But I would walk away from post and there was, a, well, was one specific sand dune. And I would sit on the sand dune and kind of lean back and lay my head on the dune where I could... If I needed to, I could lower my eyes down and still see the crate 100 yards away and be far enough away that I could smoke a cigarette without anybody yelling at me. And uh, on this one, on this specific day, there was was another person, another guy that had been posted out there with me. And uh, he was, I don't know, six or seven feet to my right, lying down on the same dune smoking a cigarette. And I just decided to get my night vision goggles out. Because I don't know if, if you've ever looked through night vision goggles or, or how many of your listeners have looked through them, but even with the clarity of the stars that you can see at night, you put on those night vision goggles and the the cosmos opens up for you. You can see tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of more stars and planets and satellites and, and aircraft flying that, that you could not see with your naked eye because that's literally what the night vision goggles do is they give you the ability to see things that you can't see at night. And uh, I was just in awe of looking up at the cosmos and, and seeing this this star field up there. And, uh, of course, I'm leaning. Imagine me lying on my back looking directly up at the night sky uh, with the, uh, the night vision goggles on. And I, I saw something that at first I thought it was a glitch. I thought that I had dropped the night vision goggles or I had gotten sand in the imaging tube and it was rolling around on the inside or or something, but I saw a extremely bright pinpoint of light that had shot from my, as I'm lying on my back looking straight up in my field of view, I saw something that came from my six o'clock position, straight up to top dead center, made an immediate 90 degree turn. And shot off to my left. And it went from horizon to horizon with that 90 degree turn in the middle in less than two seconds. And I just kind of shook my head a little bit and whacked the side of the night vision goggles and, you know, blew air up into the imaging tube and things like that, thinking that there was a glitch. And I put them back on and I continued to look and I saw this thing repeat over and over and over again and it would come the same pattern the same way the same speed the same 90 degree turn right at the apex of of my 12 o'clock position while while lying on my back and looking up and there was no pause there was no hesitation there was no arc or radius or or gradual sloping in that 90 degree turn it was as if somebody was using a laser pointer with a square and just tracing it and it was it was just an absolute perfect execution of a maneuver without the loss or the gain of any momentum whatsoever. And I had a very difficult time and I still don't know what altitude this would have been at. I am assuming, and this is just simply an assumption, I am assuming that we were looking at well over 30,000 feet, probably closer to 80 or 90 and most likely we were in the upper bounds of the atmosphere at around 120 130 000 feet if not higher um there were no strobes there were no uh patterns or anything it was a solid and constant illuminated point in my night vision goggles uh there was no sound uh, of course i don't even know if you could hear sound at that altitude but I saw it so many times I, I took my night vision goggles off and I handed it, handed the goggles over to the guy that was smoking a cigarette on the side. And he was just like, what? And I said, just, just look. And, uh, he was like, what am I looking for? And I was like, just, just look, I didn't say anything. And he put the night vision goggles on and you know, about a minute or so goes by. And the next thing I know I could see his head track. I could see his head move down and to the left. Right. And I, and I knew at that moment that he saw exactly what it was that I was looking at. And uh, he takes the goggles off and he hands them back over to me and he just finishes smoking a cigarette and just walks back to post. He doesn't say shit. He doesn't say anything. Um, so I. It's not like I could say anything. I had walked off post to go smoke a cigarette. I had broken all the rules of what my duty assignment was. Because I was addicted to nicotine, and uh, and wanted to smoke a cigarette in peace without a, a lieutenant yelling at me, and uh, that, that's that's what I saw. And it took me it took me 15 years to start piecing all the, the the little nuances of the whole deployment and the ops tempo and the contents of the crate and the the uh, the apparent connection between. Uh, this phenomena and uh, the proximity of, of nuclear devices. And it took me 24 years to be able to track down other individuals who were on the receiving side. And, and I will say that, uh, that Anthony and his production team found a guy who I pointed them to uh, who was in another location and was a receiver of that crate who has verified, although it didn't make the show, he verified that my suspicions about the content of that crate were actually accurate.
2: So thank you, first off, for for telling that again, and especially with the added detail in there. it's, It's incredible to listen to. It's taken a long time for you to come out and talk about that to and and you've done it in spectacular fashion to to a huge audience as well of millions and many more people around the world are going to hear this what's the reaction been since have you had contact with people that were in the military with you previously and they've came out saw you on the show you know had that conversation of oh great i saw you on the show you done well or can't believe you were talking about that what's the tone been like in that conversation
1: yeah it's uh it's actually been been interesting the floodgates have kind of opened uh of of the sort um as you know from from getting in contact with the uh uh, a and e networks to be able to have me on on your podcast it's not easy to find somebody that was on the show Uh, they -hmm. don't put out my contact information on that show Uh, however i have been tracked down uh, by people that knew me in a previous life uh, knew me from the military, uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, the episode that came out prior to mine, uh, Mike V's episode with the Black Triangles, uh, we ran ran into each other on Reddit, and we vetted each other out and verified that we were who we said we were and and things like that, and uh, we've had a, a series of phone calls and a series of conversations uh, off-record about our experiences with the show and the experiences that we've had that didn't make the air and uh, and things like that. Um, and it's interesting to hear somebody else's experiences that uh, that went through a very similar situation that, that, that I did myself. But yes, to answer your question in short, there have been several people that I have known in the military that either I stayed in contact with or knew how to get in contact with me that have, uh, have come to me and said, hey, uh, can you put me in touch with Lou? Because I've got a story that, that I would like to let Lou know of. Um, one guy in particular, uh, and let me reach over here to my phone. I want to pull something up because I do not want to misquote his credentials. No, of course. Uh, he is, I've already, I've already told Lou about this individual and this guy was a captain in the Army, and his exact – he was a signals intel warfare officer. I'm, I'm looking at one of the one of the certificates – well,
2: of course, my – yeah, anyway. Yeah,
1: you can't see it on the on the video there. For the, for the people listening at the house, uh, Andrew and I can actually see each other, uh, but, uh, but you guys are just hearing us. But <laughs> yeah, he was a, a signals intel warfare officer in the United States Army. And uh, he and I went to college together a long, long time ago. And uh, he reached out to me and and asked me if I could put him in contact with Lou. And to kind of give you an idea of of the situation, he doesn't want to be on the show. He doesn't want to be interviewed by the show. Um, He doesn't want to come forward or be seen or be heard. He just simply wants to tell Lou what he had been exposed to uh, during a few of his
2: deployments in Iraq. Mm. and I, I know you listened you said to me which is great to hear to you listen to the show uh, with Anthony LePay and Anthony I was really surprised when I spoke to him that he, he was so open to discuss that he had people from NASA get in touch who like you, your friend you're talking about weren't ready to come on the show mm-hmm. but talked about experiences they had had I and mean, when you've got people again at, at NASA level getting in touch with the show, like you say, it's opened those floodgates and maybe that's down the line. Maybe people like your friend will be more comfortable to have that conversation on a series three or four, maybe, but for every, for every nine that don't, one's coming forward and that's making a massive difference.
1: Well, I, I think in my case, and I can't speak for anybody else, but I can, I can hypothesize and assume that a lot of people are thinking the same way that I did here. When, going back to your 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 opening when I said that you know you don't necessarily want to be the guy that sees the UFO when you have something like this happen to you you are isolated you are compartmentalized you are placed on a shelf and you don't really talk to it talk to about it to anybody else so when there is somebody like Lou like Chris Mellon like Steve Justice like like my my buddy from the army who have the credibility and have the credentials and they are having an open public discourse about this you want to talk to them even if it's just on a personal level because you want a little bit of mental validation you want to make sure that what you saw what you remember seeing wasn't just some sort of synaptic short circuit in your brain and you're misremembering something that happened to you 10 or 15 years ago. You want to watch somebody's facial expressions, hear the tone of their voice, watch their body language when, when they are in the process of validating or countering or helping to identify or explain what it is that you saw. Because at, for me anyway, one of the reasons that I came forward is is exactly that. I wanted, I wanted to have a discourse. I didn't necessarily want to be on the show. I wanted to have a discourse with somebody who knew more than I did so I could have a personal validation and a deeper understanding of what it was that I saw. And I think a lot of people that are coming forward are not glory hounds. They're not what I alluded to as the the wife beater, chain smoking, wearing, uh, you know, guy in front of the trailer in in South Florida. These, these are legitimate people who have had powerful experiences that have happened to them that until now they've had no other outlet to speak with anybody that is not going to label them. And I think that is something that, that Lou and Anthony and the guys in, in, in this show and, and society in general now is allowing to have happen is a, a free discourse without
2: judgment. How has it changed your own views, if, if at all, on ufology, UFOs, this, this topic?
1: I'm a child of the 70s, man. I, I, I was born in the early 70s and I, I grew up... My The first movie I ever went to uh by myself uh was in 1977 when Star Wars came out you know i i remember being in the theater standing up in the back because it was a full house and you couldn't even get a seat i think i paid like 75 cents for the ticket or something but yeah i'm old but uh you know it's it's interesting i've i grew up watching Carl Sagan i i grew up listening to my grandfather talk about the cosmos and and things like that. He was a professor of physical science at a local college where, uh, where I grew up in, in the town that I grew up in. And I grew up in a very scientific, very methodic household where you know, there, there were no ghosts, there were no things that go bump in the night. There was an explanation for everything. Um, but when it came to the idea of, let's just say it, uh, extraterrestrial life in the cosmos, there was no answers. There was no answers. It was always a, well, we don't know. So I've always been open to the idea. I've never been one that looks out at at Venus on a hot day and sees, you know, the, the light shimmering and goes, oh my God, there's a UFO. I, no, I, I, you know, I, I live here in Las Vegas and there are people on uh, on these social apps that uh, talk about crime and things like that in your local area, and they're like, oh, I saw a UFO yesterday, and here's the video of it, and it's obviously, you know, uh, uh, Maverick Helicopters doing their tour of the, the Grand Canyon coming back in for a landing. and, and yeah. People see what they want to see, uh, and they, they convince themselves a lot ahead of the time. Um, and I never really gravitated towards the towards the UFO world. Uh, I've until recently, and, and recently meaning the last few months, I'd never even read a book about UFOs or UFO encounters. I've watched the movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind or or the one with the Fourth Kind with the creepy owls and things like that, and and of course E.T. and, and things like that. But I've I've never. I've never gone to a MUFON uh, convention. I've never gone to a UFO convention, uh, uh, things like that. It's just, it's not my circle. It's not my world. Um, And I always, I guess as an admission, a a personal admission, and, and maybe even a bit of an apology, I always looked at those people as whack jobs. You know, the people that come out and say, I was I was abducted when I was 17. And every summer on December 13th at three o'clock, something takes me through the wall of my bedroom. To this day, I look at that person and wonder what is wrong with them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, maybe maybe some of these things need revisited. Maybe some of these things need revisited in a different light. Um, I I have more questions now than I have answers for. I've I've developed theories about what's happening. I've developed theories about why things are happening. Um and I think that I have a fairly good understanding of current events and and the why behind things. But there's also a ninety-nine percent chance that I'm completely
2: wrong. I think there's a ninety-nine point nine percent chance all of us are wrong at some point in a people like myself put a lot of eggs in uh, Chris Mellon and Luella Zondo's basket. Uh, and I'm very much on, on their train with them. Um, do you think, and it was quite funny when it, when I was going through and making my notes to speak to you, I've got this little notebook that every single interview I've done. The podcast is only three months old, but I've spoken to a lot of people. Um, and I got to a page where I went to go on a second page of questions for you. And my two year old daughter had left a massive scribble all over the page. And it's literally, as I was getting to the question, that was tying in that I see your seven-year-old daughter wants to be an astronaut, which is amazing, because that seems like something. I'm I'm 34, but nobody in my generation wants to be an astronaut, and it's something that seems to be it was a 50s or 60s thing. People wanted to go to the moon and go to space. Yeah. Do you think things are coming back to a point now, even with, like, SpaceX landing again yesterday um, and having tie-ins with NASA, Elon Musk, the government, TTSA launching a conversation into the mainstream... Do you think people like your daughter, like my daughter, like youngsters joining the military are going to be more open to that conversation now? Or is that stigma still there?
1: I I think I think SpaceX has done an amazing job of picking up where NASA in my opinion and and forgive me to the the NASA followers and 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 diehard uh, fanboys of NASA, NASA dropped the ball. Uh, NASA dropped the ball with keeping space exciting. Um, and SpaceX has has come around in a period of, of a decade, a decade and a half. Uh, you know, here's a guy that has come onto the scene. Uh, he tried to buy uh, rockets or rocket boosters from Russia 10 or 15 years ago, couldn't pull it off, and, you know, got Upset because they wanted to charge him a, a fortune for these things, and he is like, you know, screw you! I'm going to go out and build my own company. And now he's taking people to the space station, mm-hmm. and and he's doing it with with private enterprise, and he's doing it in an amazing in an amazing way. And and SpaceX in partnership with NASA. And I got to give NASA credit because SpaceX can't do it by themselves um, yet. But to answer your question, yeah, I, I, think, I think that social media and the new way of delivering information and the fact that SpaceX is a very soundbite-friendly type of organization, uh, the excitement is coming back. Uh, and, I, and I do believe that in my situation, I'm an older parent that has a younger daughter. And because because I was a child of the 70s, uh, grew up in the 70s and the 80s, I had the space shuttles. You know, I was I I was the end of the Apollo era, and I watched the entire uh, build and and demise of the uh, the shuttle era. So I never lost the romanticism, but the people shortly after the the shuttle era came, there there was nothing for them. So I have the unique ability to bring my passion for the exploration of the cosmos and try to infuse my daughter with that while at the same time spacex is showing progress and they're coming out and they're saying somebody is alive today on this planet that is going to be the first person on mars mm-hmm. and that that is a powerful statement for children who are watching this because that gives them the ability to say that could be me that I could be the first person on Mars, and that's you know that's exactly what my daughter's saying. She was like, I could be that person that's alive. So I I think it's a it's a powerful time for us to be uh, living for our children.
2: Absolutely, and again I'll I'll thank you in wrapping up the interview that you've came forward at a time where the conversation conversation's being reignited, and I've just spoken to a guest just before you in a, another interview, and we were discussing how seventy years of research into this topic. It seemed to have stagnated and got to put, like you say, with NASA. They'd done so much great work and it got to a point where maybe they had done their work and it was time for someone else to take over. And I think two and a half years ago, Lou Elizondo burst onto the scene with Tom DeLonge, Steve Justice, Hal of Jim Semivan and Chris Mellon. And they've taken the conversation to another level and it's bringing in people like yourself and it's changed a bit of a narrative. But there's no doubt in that military credibility, the military background, getting commercial pilots involved, high ranking officials in government is making all the difference in the conversation. So again, thank you very much for that,
1: Andrew. It's it's been an absolute pleasure, and there's there's so much more to to say about this. And given the the opportunity and the timing, uh, you know, if if uh, if I'm ever able to speculate on on ideas and, and thoughts of What's spurring this disclosure and, and what might be coming? I'd, I'd love to be able to speculate under the understanding that it is simply complete and total speculation. Absolutely.